Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this morning, we want to, uh, a couple of things we want to do. First, I want to lift up First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. And um, I want to pray for my dad and pray for my family there and um, pray for people that I grew up with and people that I've known for years that just pray right now that they, uh, all of them are seeking the Lord's face and um, seeking, seeking your face. And Lord, I pray that they are um, humbled by the cross. I pray that uh, the tough, de- tough decisions that they make, the difficult meetings that they go through, that those are tempered by genuine cross-rocked humility. And um, I pray that they'll be small in their own eyes. I just pray that you'll be huge through what that church is going through right now. Lord, we pray that right now um, what they're dealing with will be a pruning and will be a time where you can be glorified. Uh, Lord, I also want to pray for a young man named Charlie Collier. And uh, Lord, I want to ask that his unit in Iraq right now, that you will encourage Charlie and you will encourage believers that are in that unit to... um, to cling to Christ right now as they face dealing with uh, losing fellow troops. Lord, we pray that in that dark hour over there that uh, you'll be glorified. And we don't know how that happens or how that will work out, but we trust that um, that you'll shine brightly. And I uh, just pray that you'll use Christians there to be mouthpieces of that glory. Lord, in the next few minutes, we are tackling something that is inhuman. Both the topic itself and just our ability to get our head and heart around it. And I pray for a divine moment. I pray for a time when the Spirit will illuminate and the Spirit will speak and the Spirit will reveal. And I pray for just an unbelievable, inhuman attentiveness that the result of that will be that you will find a people that are truly small in their own eyes and that in that, that Christ will be glorified. We turn this time over to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to John chapter 11, please. I'm going to ask you a few questions. These are hypothetical. Don't need to be answered out loud. Turn me down a little bit, please, Cody. I'll be shouting later, and I don't want to... Not really. <clears throat> Do you have a tough time taking criticism? Does anybody really like criticism? Bring it on. Tell me how poorly a job I'm doing or tell me how I can do things better. <laughs> I think that's a pretty easy question that we can answer in the affirmative. Do you feel like you're not getting what you deserve? Maybe it's uh, in life, maybe in your marriage. You feel like you deserve a happier marriage. It may be your looks. You feel like you should be more dashing. Really. Maybe you feel like you deserve a different body type and shouldn't have to wrestle with weight problems or things like that. Maybe you feel like you deserve better health. Maybe you feel like you deserve people treating you better. Maybe you feel like you deserve a better job. Are you suspicious of other people? Just by nature. Do you just have this this mindset that says, those people are conspiring about me. They're talking about me. Do you have this something within you that feels that way sometimes or maybe all the time? Are you hypercritical of other people? Are you like the duty uh, critic? And anytime somebody does something, you make comments on how it can be done better. People just can't seem to do it to your standards. Do you think your ideas are the best ideas and the best way about going about doing something? <clears throat> those are just a few questions, and I, I, we're going to come back to those, not individually in the end, but I think this message will hopefully shed some light on that mindset. The mindset that's behind each of those questions where I expect that some of you may have been elbowing your spouse. He's talking about you. 
And if you're elbowing your spouse, or maybe if you are reserved or controlled enough not to elbow, but just to think about your spouse, then I want to turn that back on you. And I want to challenge you to consider that there are times where each of us can answer affirmative to those questions. All or some. There are times where every single one of us may feel like we're not getting what we deserve or we're not being treated the way that we should be treated. This message will speak to that problem today. John chapter 11, verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, that's Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There's no imagery wasted in John. The book of John was written, John presented seven signs that are really just miracles that he explains in great detail. They were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. This is one of those signs, the story of Lazarus. And the imagery, the details matter. He calls forth Lazarus, a guy that's been dead for four days. They didn't embalm people that died, the Israelites. They just wrapped them up and stuck them in a hole. And this guy had been in the tomb four days, or at least he'd been dead four days. And by this point, Martha says, he's going to stank. The King James Version says, he stinketh. That's how we got the title of this series of messages. Lazarus' deadness, his decomposition, and his resultant stench, and his inability to do anything about that is imagery of our condition and our situation and our lot and our station apart from the work of Christ. That's the foundation for the series of messages that we're encountering these last few weeks. Really what we've done these last few weeks is we've realized that we cannot appreciate the riches that we have in Christ until we seriously consider our poverty without Him. That in doing that, when we do that, we find these treasures, and they're weird treasures. We just never would have anticipated that in our stinketh that we will find treasures. But here's a few of them. First of all, we found that we have a deeper understanding of our wickedness and our vileness and our odiousness. I love that word. It describes me. We have a deeper appreciation and understanding for our condition. And then on the flip side of that, we realize that but for Christ, we would still stinketh. But for Christ, we would still occupy that spiritual tomb hopeless and helpless, wrapped in the arms of death. But through the finished work of Christ that we've been called for from a tomb and that over time we grow out of stinkiness. And then in fact, we become a sweet aroma of Christ to God over time because of the finished work of Christ and because blood bathes us and covers us and deodorizes us. We also learned that in light of this, in light of the riches that we have in Christ and the poverty that we have without him, it transformed our worship from being just a song, our place that we go on Sunday morning. I'm going to worship. How do you go to worship when worship is supposed to be an offered life? We may go to corporate worship where we all come together to do what we're doing all week long with an offered life because that's the only appropriate response to our poverty and the riches offered in Christ, that he's not some sort of accessory on our life, that we don't dabble in him. Like we go to the car lot and we get us a new car and we say, hey, I think I'll get a sunroof. That'd be cool. Give me a sunroof. Give me some leather. We'll get some accessories that we treat Jesus like he's an accessory in light of our poverty and in light of the riches that are offered in his finished work. There's no room to accessorize with Christ. He's everything. 
We don't dabble in him. We don't live with compartments where Jesus has a little Sunday compartment. And then we have the rest of everything else. He invades every place and that becomes an offered life. We also, when we consider the riches that we have in Christ and the poverty that we have without him, it left us, left, left us arrested over grace. When we consider how low grace had to reach and that grace was not just him saying, okay, you're forgiven, but it was a ransom. It was a redemption and is a continuing redemption. It was a purchase. It was a rescue. And that all of those things were not just from the spoken word. Okay, you're ransomed. You're redeemed. You're rescued. But it was actually somebody taking the place that we deserved. Where the payment for that ransom was Christ's very own life. That's grace. And that left us shocked that he would do that for the stinky. It left us especially content when we consider that we really don't deserve anything. You think you deserve health? You think you deserve a long, happy life? You think you deserve a nice car, a nice house? You think you deserve a great work setting? You think you deserve a promotion, good pay? Well, we realize from that message that the only thing that we truly deserve, if we want to talk about what we deserve, is God's wrath. If we want to talk about what we really deserve, the stinketh, we deserve God's wrath. And in light of that, man, we can be content with anything. Oh, I got a shack to live in? Cool, gravy. You mean I got a pinto to drive? Sweet. Man, I'll take that over God's wrath any day. I hope nobody has a pinto in here, man. That'd be, <laughs> that'd be a bummer, boy. I like pintos. And then last week, last week, our poverty, our stench, our poor condition apart from Christ left us answerably humble. If you're in fellowship with Christ, you're left answerable. When you see your stench, when you see your sinfulness, your wretchedness, your vileness, you want to answer with that. You want to reckon with that. That's the difference between legal humility, where you just caught, and answerable humility where you're caught and you want to reckon with it. So that's what we discovered last week is that that's where humility comes from, a saving humility. But we're not just remorseful over sin, but we are repentant. There's a difference between remorse and re repentance. We're not just sad about the consequences of sin. Who's not? But we actually want to reckon with wronging a holy God. That's genuine evangelical, saving, answerable humility. Today's message is going to be like part B of last week, and we'll have part C next week. I keep asking the question, Lord, am I beating a dead horse? And then I start thinking, no. Am, am, am I beating this to death? And then I start thinking, no, I think we're beating it to life. That through this crazy exploration of our stinkiness and our stench and our vileness and our odiousness that we're seeing a greater adoration of Christ. So we'll plow on. This week we're going to consider how an appreciation of our poverty, spiritual poverty, impacts how we view others and how we treat others. That's kind of this week and next week. Here's the next jewel in this treasure chest of stench. The next jewel this morning is the formerly smelly are little in their own eyes. The formerly smelly are little in their own eyes. Now, in the next few minutes, I'm going to do something I've never done before. Oh, and I'm so nervous about it. We're going to cover like 22 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. We really are. We're not going to read it word for word, the whole thing. I'm going to actually read excerpts, and I'm going to try and narrate between excerpts. I'm going to tell you the story of a guy named Saul. Now, if you're one of those that really likes to follow along in your Bible, like that's what you do to pay attention, then turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and just leave your finger in there. And then just close your Bible and pay attention. You won't be able to follow along with me. Until we get to 15, That's, let me qualify that. When we get to 15, we'll all camp out just for a minute because there's some key pictures in there. But I'm going to start in chapter 8. 
And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now, give a little context here. Samuel was the last judge and kind of like the first prophet of the nation of Israel. Okay? And uh, Samuel's getting old, and his sons, he appointed judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And uh, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Okay? So then all the elders of Israel get together, and they come to Samuel at Ramah, and they say to him, Sam, behold, you've grown old. Look at yourself. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king for us to judge or for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said it. Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. Okay? The next, the rest of that chapter, and then on into chapter 9, Samuel is led to a guy named Saul. Okay, here's where he's introduced in chapter 9. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He had a son whose name was Saul. Saul was a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So this guy's dashing, he's a choice, and he's a moose. I mean, he's standing head and shoulders taller than the rest of Israel. And he's, he's a real stud. Well, anyway, his dad, Kish, sends him out to find some donkeys that he lost. And Samuel meets Saul on that journey. The Lord leads them to where they connect up. And then in chapter 10, and Saul, Samuel knows that Saul is going to be king. So then in chapter 10, it's made public before the nation of Israel that Saul will be king. In verse 17, chapter 10, Samuel called all the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So the nation of Israel comes by before Samuel and tribes and clans. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families. And Saul, the son of Kish, uh, but when they looked for him, he, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, behold, he's hiding himself by the baggage. This is the guy, the moose, the handsome choice lad that's going to be the new king of Israel. And he's hiding himself among the baggage. So they ran and they took him. It almost sounds like they had to restrain him and drag him up there. They took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Again, moose. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there's no one like him among all the, all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Okay. First real introduction to this guy named Samuel. The thing I want you to appreciate, I want this image of this big guy trying to hide, big handsome lad, trying to hide among some baggage as the king of Israel and imagine and examine his heart. This guy is running from recognition. This guy is small in his own eyes. Like this guy with me. I like big guys, and I especially like big handsome guys that don't know they're big and handsome. And this is what Saul's like right here. He's a big, likable lug, and you just got to love him. He's small in his own eyes, and he's running from recognition. Okay, we like Samuel right now. Okay, now verse 27. So, yeah, Saul, excuse me. Man, I wish they had two different S's. Or S was something different, but I struggle with that. Verse 27, okay. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? They're speaking of Saul. And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. He's small in his own eyes. He doesn't think himself all that special. He faces some initial resistance, and he kept silent. Now, these men aren't identified. These worthless men really aren't identified, but they may be the next people that we meet. 
Whether they are or not, let's continue on the story, and you'll understand why this will come back around. Now Nahash the Ammonite, this is a bad guy, came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh, I think that these, he may be referring to the men of Jabesh, that were the, the men that resisted Saul. Who can, how can a guy like this lead us? And they said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. So this guy, Nahash, is a bad guy. He surrounds Jabesh Gilead, and he's going to go get these guys. And they say, well, make a covenant with us. Let's make a deal, and then we'll come out to you, and we'll serve you. And Nahash says this. He said to them, I'll make it with you on this condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus, I will make it a reproach on all Israel. Say, I'll make a deal with you. You come on out here, and I'll gouge out your right eye, and then that'll be the deal. And then you can... Walk all around Israel, and everybody will know that I whipped you behind. <laughs> Sound good? And then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days. You can imagine, they are bumming about that kind of news. Let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. So they send word throughout the, the uh, kingdom. And, and then in verse 5, Saul is coming from the field behind his oxen. Big guy. You know, he's, he's up, people have already said, hey, you're going to be the king. And he's actually out, actually out in his field, plowing behind his oxen again. I still like this guy. He's still small in his own eyes. And he said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? What's wrong with everybody? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. And then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Now, if the men of Jabesh were the same guys that didn't bring him any gifts and the same guys that said... How can you be king of this? Do you think he would be angry? Well, if he's small in his own eyes, he may be. If he's big in his own eyes, like where I am usually, he would have gone, oh, these guys are going to get what they deserve. I hope they gouge out both eyes. <laughs> they didn't bring me any gifts. But he gets angry. So then Saul sends messengers throughout the kingdom, and he gets his army together. And in verse 9, he says, he also sends messengers to these guys in Jabesh Gilead. Then you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. They liked their eyes. That sounds good to me. Come on, bring it on. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Then the people said to Samuel, this is where they bring up that whole thing where these guys didn't support Samuel. It may not have been the men of Jabesh, Gilead. I think it was. But it may have just been some other random dudes where these guys bring up to Saul. You remember those guys that didn't support uh, Saul? And here's where he does it. The people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death because Saul just showed he's the man. Now that was my addition there at the end. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Saul is still small in his own eyes. It's not about him at this point. It's not about his fame. It's about the Lord's fame. This guy is just delightfully small in his own eyes. Now, move over to chapter 13. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he began the reign... Uh, began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now, what, you're, what we're about to encounter over the next couple of chapters is war with the Philistines. Throughout Saul's reign, there was just almost constant combat with the Philistines. And here's an occasion where Saul began to get larger. Okay, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash, and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. Okay, so basically get those numbers right. Saul's got 2,000 with him, his son Jonathan. So this is probably well on into his reign where he's got an adult son that can fight. Jonathan's got about 1,000 or so with him. Total of 3,000 for uh, the nation of Israel. And then in verse, verse 5 of that chapter. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait... That's like biblical for they were in a fix. They were in a pickle. When they saw they were in a strait, for the, Bible, or, or for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and in thickets and in cliffs and in cellars and in pits. And Saul was still in Gilgal with all the people following him trembling. 
Now, Saul was given some instruction by Samuel to wait on me seven days. And I'm going to come back, and then we'll go into combat against these 30,000 chariots, uh, 6,000 horsemen, and as many people in their army as are the sand on the seashore. Wait till I get back, though. Don't, don't do anything till I get back. So now Saul waited seven days according to the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, you can start seeing this word a lot. Me. Or a derivative of that. I or myself. This is the first time you see it. Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, Samuel, it was really hard to do. I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering anyway. So, I hope you're okay with that. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. A smaller man. You'll meet later. A guy that stays pretty small in his own eyes for the most part. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, Saul's starting to get big. And what Saul is saying is, being more, is more important to him than what God is telling him to do. So God's word takes a back seat to what Saul's plans are. Okay, later on in the story, they're still fighting the Philistines. Jonathan experiences a victory against the Philistines. He takes his armor bearer, and they go sneak behind enemy lines and just wipe out a whole bunch of the Philistines. It's crazy. And then in verse 24 of that same chapter, you're about to see more of what Saul is like. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. You're hearing a guy that's starting to get bigger. And he's starting to make foolish orders like, don't eat. If, I can tell you this, being in, in harm's way, being in some sort of combat situation, there are two things you really need, and food and water are both of them. And in this case, he's saying, y'all don't eat until I avenge myself on my enemies. You're getting, a, you're getting to see a little case of meitis. You're going to see a lot of it as we continue. And the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to, the, to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan, now that's his son, had not heard his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Ah, that's good. His eyes, it must have been really good. His eyes brightened up. And then one of the people said, Oh, your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. And Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land, the big guy that he is. See now how my eyes have brightened? Because I tasted a little of this honey? How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great, because they're underfed, undernourished, they have no fuel for combat. So maybe inspired by Jonathan's act of eating some honey in verse 31, the rest of Israel, they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very weary. So then the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. They're so hungry, they start eating raw meat. Okay. Then what happens in verse 43? Saul's going to root out who's the person that led Israel to this terrible sin. But first of all, going against my orders and then eating meat with blood in it. Saul said to Jonathan, he singled him out through casting lots. He said, tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. 
Saul said, May God do this to me, and more also, for you shall surely die. When I was a kid growing up, we used to watch this show called Happy Days. Young people, it was actually a show called Happy Days. And there was a guy on there named Fonzie. And the Fonz, man, he was something else. This guy just had a way with the ladies. He was just a, he was kind of, kind of guy. He was the main character of the story a lot of times. But he, one of the things that was funny about the Fonz is he couldn't say he was wrong. You remember those episodes where he's trying to say he's wrong? Like he'd done something wrong and one of the other guys, I can't remember what all their name, Potsy or one of those guys approaches him. He says, I was, I was, he couldn't get it out. That sounds like Saul right here. He can't say, I was, he was wrong in making that order for the nation of Israel. Don't eat until I avenge my enemies. But thankfully, the nation of Israel protected Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die who's brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Saul is so big, he can't even admit that he made a bad decision. So then in, in chapter 15, I remember I told you to put your finger in there. Listen to this. Follow along with me. Then Samuel said to Saul, Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. This is another bad guy, hence the Amalekites. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him. Listen to these specific orders. Do not spare him, Saul. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pretty clear? Put to death nearly pretty much every living thing. Let's see what happens in verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites. In verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed just a little bit of sin just a little bit of disobedience come on now yeah we didn't kill everything yet like you said but we got most of them we got all the really bad guys but as far as Agag and the real nice sheep and the fatlings and the oxen and the lambs you know we saved those And the Lord came to Samuel, remember the prophet. He said, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Homeboy so into himself by this point. He, got, he, is, he is eaten up with meitis. He set up a monument for himself and then, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. How about that? What part of exterminate did you miss there, Saul? But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? You got to like Samuel. What, what's that noise? Uh, you killed everything? Well, how, why am I hearing sheep bleat? In the lowing of oxen, which I hear. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. You catch that? He's starting to play the blame game. Homeboy's so big in his own eyes by this point that he's blaming everyone else. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, it is, or is it not true? This is a key passage. Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Again, what part of exterminate did you not understand, Saul? 
And I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, again, he's blaming, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, Saul. You had these big plans, and actually you probably had to, never had those plans at all. You're just excusing yourself from disobedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. And then Saul said to Samuel in verse 24, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He listened to them and he feared the people because he's huge by this point. At this point, it's about him. It's not about what God says. It's about what people say. Verse 25. Now, therefore, Samuel, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Let's see if this is a pure motive. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go, and Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. Man, he's pitiful at this point, isn't he? He's pitiful. Saul walks away dismissing, or Samuel walks away dismissing Saul. And Saul just jumps and clings to his robe, and it tears and then Samuel turns around and he said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you and smaller than you. We'll see later. So then Saul says, I have sinned, but please honor me. Listen to the me's. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. At this point, it's not about worship. It's not about God at all. It's about me. It's about my reputation before the nation of Israel. Come on, Samuel, don't walk away. I want the nation of Israel to still think I'm the man. If you do that, they'll dismiss me. So please stay with me so that we can go worship the Lord your God. This is a little side note that I just can't pass up. I just love Sam. I enjoy him so much. Here's a little side note. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring me Agag. Now, remember, they were charged with killing everybody. He said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel, it's good to see you, man. Maybe we can be golfing partners now. You, me, and Saul, we can golf together. And, it, boy, that's a terrible fight. You know, I hate to see all my, all my people die, but, man, it's a good thing you're not mad at me anymore. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Thank you, Sam, for finishing the work. Thank you for finishing the job that the people were charged with doing. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. All right. Next, we're going to meet David. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time with David. We'll get little glimpses of him. Samuel goes to Bethlehem and meets David, finds Jesse and his family, and David is anointed. And then David goes out and whips Goliath. Everybody knows that story of David and Goliath. And then in verse 57 in chapter 17. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, he just killed Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul and the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him with himself. He stripped off his robe. He gave that to David. He stripped off his armor, his belt, his weapons. He gave all that to David. So then Saul, seeing that, gave David charge over his troops. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And in verse 6, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of this whole story, of, this, of where Saul is and how he's getting bigger. Okay, Let me stop before I read it. I know this is different. I, I don't have a video screen behind me, a little television. 
Y'all can pay attention and watch an hour-long show. It don't matter in eternity, worth anything. So I know this is different, reading like this. It may be different to be read to. My son closes his eyes and he listens. And he gets it all. I'm begging you to engage this story. Do not sit here and think, oh man, this is boring. I want to hear a cool story. You're hearing one. Engage this. Listen. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing. Okay, David has just killed Goliath. David and Saul are, are together at this point. Jonathan's probably with him. And the women come out of the city singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and, and with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and they said, Saul has slain his thousands. You can imagine Saul is soaking that up by this point. Saul knows he's the man. He thinks he's the man. He's saying, yeah, man, I've slain my thousands. He's adding some, some choruses to what they're singing. He's singing along with them. But then he hears the next verse. And David, his ten thousands. Oh, wait a minute. I'm the king. He didn't do anything but throw a slingshot, a rock with a slingshot and hit Goliath in the head. But I'm the king, and I've been the king for a long time, defeating armies. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to, to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul is huge by this point. He's like gargantuan. Then in verse 10, now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. We don't know what that evil spirit was. Maybe it was just jealousy. Maybe it was just pride. You could probably relate to having a, that, that overwhelmed with jealousy or overwhelmed with something that just feels like you're being plagued by something. And Saul is wrestling with that. And he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. That's the first picture you're going to see of Saul with a spear in his hand, you're going to see it a lot more through the rest of the book. And Saul was sitting there with a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. So he must have tried to do it a couple times. So then Saul thinks, well, you know, David, he's pretty nimble. I can't nab him. I can't, can't get him with my spear, but maybe I can trick him into marrying one of my daughters. He must not have thought much of his family or his daughters. I'm going to trick him into marrying one of my daughters, and then somehow the Philistines will get crossways with him. So he tried to first have him marry his daughter Merib, and that didn't work out. So then he, has to, he, he, he wants him to marry Michael. So then David actually marries Michael, but here's how the story goes. Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. And then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you and all his servants love you, David. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So the servant spoke these words to David and David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed. That man's small in his own eyes. You could almost hear him say, I'm a poor man, lightly esteemed, and I stinketh. How in the world could you consider me as a candidate to be the king's son-in-law? David is small in his own eyes. In verse 30 of the next chapter, chapter 20. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. Jonathan loved David. They were best of friends. And Jonathan's trying to find out if Saul really wanted to kill David. And Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He'd just been talking about this. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. So we already know that he didn't like his daughters if he's trying to use them to get back at David. And now we know that he doesn't like his wife either. Here's where things get really personal. And if you've kind of disengaged, you're really going to miss out on this. If you've been engaged, you can realize if you're crossways with your spouse, that there may be a solution in here. Or if you can't live in harmony with people, that there may be a solution in here. If you can't understand why your family is in shambles, there may be a solution in here that there's something going on in Saul that may be going on in you. Here's where things must get very personal. He says of his wife, you son of a perverse rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? 
For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul, he's got a spear in his hand. He hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father decided to put David to death. Now, there's passage after passage through the rest of the chapter where you see Saul with spear in hand. You see him later on, you see him surrounded by his people, and he starts accusing his people of conspiring against him. This guy that was little in his own eyes at first, and now thinks the whole world is against him and conspiring against him, and he just completely comes unglued. Later on, you see him, he... um, David tries to kill him. He spares his life. Or or David has an opportunity to kill him. He spares his life twice on both occasions. You find him with a spear sitting right next to him. Saul keeps that spear in hand for the rest of the chapter. And then on to chapter 31, Saul eventually kills himself. I'm not even going to read it, but I'll just tell you. He kills himself in battle. He's fighting the Philistines, and he's taken some uh, arrows and... um, he asks his armor bearer, hey, will you kill me? Will you go ahead and put me out of my misery? And uh, his armor bearer is afraid to do that. He said, I can't do that. And uh, he says, really, I'd really like for you to do that because these guys, they're going to come and they're going to cut me with their swords and then they're going to make sport of me. Even to the very end, he's got a terrible case of meitis, and it's all about him. Here's where I wanted to go with that long story. This guy that started out hiding in the baggage, reluctantly recognized. This guy that faced resistance with forgiveness and even grace. This guy who was truly small in his own eyes. This guy turned, as he got bigger in his own eyes, he turned disobedient, where what he had to say was more important than what God had to say. He placed his thoughts and his plans and his will over God's. As he got bigger in his own eyes, he got a bad case of meitis where it was all about him, where all he could think about is his vengeance, his reputation, and what people thought of him. He also grew suspicious where he's distrusting of everyone, where everything was a conspiracy. And he also grew aggressive in defending himself. He's always seen with a spear in hand through the rest of the book. Rather than facing resistance with grace like he did when he was small in his own eyes, Now he faces resistance by trying to pin resistors to the wall. He's pitiful. As I read that story, man, I thought, what a a sad character, Saul, how he came unglued. And the thing that convicted me over the course of that story, let let me just shoot straight with y'all. I I shoot straight when I preach anyway, but let me have kind of a heart-to-heart as I could just imagine sitting down next to you. I'm frustrated that I could not communicate to you that story. There's a lot of this yet that I couldn't read, because I saw you guys getting kind of distracted. Maybe it's hot in here. Or maybe it's just hard to be read to for that long. And that breaks my heart. And I want to beg you to read 1 Samuel. <laughs> you, have it, you have it too. I want to beg you to read 1 Samuel. And to, 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 let the, to let this guy be pitiful. And then see what happens to you. Here's what happened to me. When I read that chapter and I bathed in that chapter this last week. I thought, that guy is pitiful. But then it began to become really personal for me. And I thought, whoa, wait a second. I see myself in Saul. I see the things that I do a lot like what Saul did. As pitiful as he became, I realize as I consider him that I'm just as pitiful. Sometimes I carry my spear everywhere I go, ready to jab whoever does not agree with me ready to jab whoever confronts me with something that they are not happy about. I'll give you a brief example, and then I'm going to close. Oftentimes when I'm preaching, I, well, not oftentimes, I've probably done this four times that I can think of. I've made the statement, I'm the chief sinner in this area, y'all. I'm the chief among these, you know? So just, it's kind of a credibility thing. I really believe that I I thought I meant it at the time, but now when I look back at retrospect, I probably didn't mean it. When I said, you know, I'm the chief sinner in this area. It's something that kind of makes it more digestible for you to think that I haven't arrived to maybe come from somebody who's in humility offering something. And I said, I'm the chief sinner in this area. Yet 
why am I so defensive when someone comes to me and confronts me about something that I've, and something that I've done to wrong them, something that I've said that's hurt their feelings? When Christy confronts me about something that I haven't done around the house that I should have done or something that I said I would do, why am I so defensive? If I'm the chief sinner and someone comes to me and says, you screwed up, you're a loser, you're messed up, I should agree with them. I would say, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, why don't you sit down and I'll, and I'll spend some time with you sharing just how messed up I am. If I'm truly small in my own eyes, then I can mean I'm the chief sinner, and that will have an impact where Christ will be huge in my relationships. But instead, I'm so aggressive with my spear to defend myself, to protect myself and my reputation and what people think about me, when really Christ demonstrated like a sheep before shearers how we should be before people that slander us, people that wrong us, people that conspire against us, people that are mean to us. Our situations are just uh, our lot that may not be what we think we deserve. I'll leave you with a quote from a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs. We've met him before. He said, A man who is little in his own eyes will account every affliction as little. And every mercy is great. Saul, when he was small in his own eyes, he could handle resistance. No big deal. Bring it on. But when he got bigger in his own eyes, every affliction became great. Everything became a conspiracy. And look what he turned into. I want to urge you, whatever my pitiful... I'm just so frustrated. I, whatever my pitiful attempt at communicating this truth to you. I want to urge you to put your doggone spear down. Put your spears down and quit defending yourself. Quit fighting back. It will transform your marriages. It will transform your relationships. It will transform your work environment. It will transform everything. If you begin to appreciate your stench, you'll be small in your own eyes and you will see the world completely differently. I urge you to put your spears down and quit defending yourself. If somebody says you've done something wrong, you probably have. If somebody says you've got something to work on, you probably do. I urge you to grow smaller in your, in, in your own eyes. It's not something you can do, but it's something you can pray for. Let me pray. Lord, I, um, I don't really know what to pray for right now. I'm just uh, kind of confused, kind of frustrated. Um, I want to be small in my own eyes, recognize that that's maybe exactly what you wanted me to preach and exactly how you want me to preach it. And... Um, Lord, I pray that by the work of grace in our lives that we can grow downward and that we can be humiliated and that in that, that Christ can be huge somehow. And that's what I'm praying for this morning. Then in this time that um, Christ is huge in somebody's life and somebody will see that it's not all about them. Lord, we want to grow downward in humiliation and we want to grow upward in adoration for Christ. Thank you so much for his work. Thank you so much for grace. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.